0: Tonight, we begin the final chapter here in the book of Joshua. One more study next week, and we'll be moving on into the book of Revelation. But this is the, this is the beautiful part, really, of the book of Joshua, this last chapter. Because it's the, the history of the Lord God. The, the glorious works that the Lord had done for the children of Israel in Canaan. And it is a marvelous picture of the amazing grace of God. And so as we begin tonight, I want to just encourage you to settle in, get ready uh, to receive some grace. Because throughout this first little bit of this chapter, the first 13 verses, we have these wonderful, wonderful pictures of the things that the Lord Himself has done. Then tonight, before we begin, think back on your own life. Of all the things in your life, in the history of you, maybe your family, how you can look back and just see the hand of God throughout your life. You can honestly say that the Lord did these things. At time of deliverance, a time of healing, a time that He's worked in some marvelous, miraculous way. Those times when you look back and you thought it was hopeless, you thought you were helpless, you thought you were lost, and yet the Lord and His wonderful grace came through and comes through and will come through in the future, time after time after time. That is the story of this last chapter. It's a bit of a history lesson here in the first 13 verses, but it's just this beautiful picture of a very undeserving nation called Israel. And you remember that they really gained their nation through Jacob's conversion, didn't they? Remember, it was Jacob, the heel catcher. Esau and Jacob, those two twin brothers, and Jacob has his name changed from that one who deceives, the one who catches the heel of his friend, to Israel. The name, meaning governed, or taken care of is a really good way to look at it, by God. Yeshua, a Hebrew verb meaning to govern or to watch over. El, God governs over. And in all of their doings in the land of Canaan, you can really look at the people of Israel, and if you can't see yourself, then there's probably a little bit of a vision problem. You may need to go see a spiritual ophthalmologist or something. Because you can see yourself. I can see myself. Those days when we're disobedient, those things, days that we're obedient, those things that we do well, those things that we do wrong, and yet through all of it, the character of the Lord shines through in His graciousness to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord, the wonder of your word. And we pray that you'd encourage us. God, we need your encouragement. We need your strengthening. God, some of us maybe have come broken, maybe hurting. God, maybe there's a problem in our life, an issue. Maybe something that we just need you to deal with. And God, we just know because you're you and you love us. And you pour out your grace on us. God, you'd work in this place tonight. Take your word, just strengthen us with it, bless us with it, touch us with it, God. We love you, Lord. Thanks for this evening. Thank you for this place to meet. Thank you for this church, these people. We just bless you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an oft-repeated axiom that many of you probably have heard. You may not know where it came from. It comes from a Spanish philosopher, George Santayana. And it's not Santana, it's not Santayana, it's none of those. It's an actual Spanish name. But it's those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And that's so true in both the positive and the negative vein. Because we can glean from the past in positive ways. And if we forget the past, we can certainly repeat those things which are negative. And so this beautiful picture in these first 13 verses is the Lord kind of giving them a little bit of a history lesson. And so I ask you to look at your own life. Look at the history of who you are, where you've been, where you've come from where you are in this world, what you're doing for the Lord, what you have done for the Lord, what you want to do for the Lord, how you want to press on and move forward in God's kingdom. And see if you don't pick up some grace tonight. Wonderfully, this history has been preserved for us in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the caves at Qumran, coughed up two full and complete scrolls of the book of Joshua. Uh, both of them dated to before 200 B.C. So uh, these words that we have in our Bible weren't penned by somebody in the 16th century as often as that lie is perpetrated. And we now know for a fact that the book of Joshua has been around for at least 22 to 2,500 years, at least, and more than likely it was in circulation at the time of Joshua. Likely these historical events were, were written down. And so those scrolls, you can... Actually go online, you can type in scrolls of the book of Joshua, and you can actually look at them. You can't read Hebrew. And quite frankly, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, take some pretty fair examination to even be able to make out the Hebrew in them, or perhaps the Aramaic or the Ugartic text or whichever they happen to be. But there are scrolls of this particular Bible. And on top of that, there are an additional almost a 100 Uh, Scrolls that are extra-biblical, in other words, they're outside of the biblical text, extra meaning apart from. There are extra-biblical scrolls that mention either the book of Joshua itself or the life of Joshua or the history of the children of Israel in Canaan that are also several thousand years old. And so when you look at the text that you have before you, uh, this is a very, very, very reliable text that we have translated into English. And so what you're reading, uh, because the common critical concern is, well, you know, these things just aren't that old. Matter of fact, the children of Israel really shouldn't be in the land that we call Israel anyway. It actually belongs to the Palestinians. It's just simply not true. This is a solid historical account of the final works of a very, very wonderful man. And so when we talk about that region of the world and when we look at it, we call it the land of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And when you read your Bible, specifically the book of Genesis, specifically the 12th chapter there, and you realize what the Lord did to place them in the land As you get to Jacob, who will then birth the nation Israel, it will be his 12 kids, amen? It will become the Jewish people. They will be Israel. They will be named after him. They will be the ones who will be governed by God. And it was there at Shechem that originally God spoke to this particular group of people. And he's now going to Speak to them again at the end of Joshua's life. And as he spoke to them the first time, he gave them a series of promises. And among those recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is this in verse 10, And so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you a large and a beautiful land filled with cities which you did not build. That was the promise. Now we get to the fulfillment. You see, those words were spoken through Moses. Moses travels in the wilderness with the children of Israel. For 40 years, because of disobedience, as they came to Kadesh Barnea, they looked in, they spied out the land, said, God gave it to us, but we're not going to take it. And so now we have finished the book to where God has been faithful to that promise that he actually made through Moses. It's important to remember that God keeps his promises. Amen? God keeps his promises. We need to keep praying for our unsaved family. God keeps his promises. We need to keep praying for people that we know that are bound up in some kind of addiction because God keeps his promises. We need to pray for those things in our lives which maybe need attention beyond what we ourselves can actually accomplish because God keeps his promises. He is faithful to hear our prayers. His word says that he hears our prayers and he answers from heaven. Now, we may not get the exact answer we want, but he will answer in his time. And the book of Joshua is proof that God keeps his promises. And so as we finish this last chapter up, we're going to see that it is in fact the Lord himself, who begins to speak the knowledge of all of this is at the very heart of who the jewish people actually are to this day god keeps his promises think about that little tiny country and think about any human reason that you could possibly come up with that would allow for its existence in the world as we know it today it's israel is surrounded by its enemies it's universally hated in the world Actually, the whole subject matter was a a 20-minute speech that was given by Winston Churchill, at the end of which he remarked: He said, if you want to have proof that God exists, you simply need to look at Israel. Because there's no reason for them to exist. And God's actually going to remind them of that very thing in this last chapter. You didn't do this, it wasn't your doing. And for me, sometimes I need to be reminded that my whole life is not my doing. God has graciously done the things that he's done in my life, very often apart from me helping him, and sometimes in direct opposition to the very things that he wants to do. Anybody else go through that? Where you haven't quite helped God out very much, and yet God still in his wonderful sovereign plan works in our lives to accomplish the things that only he can accomplish. We're going to see a few words in this last chapter come up, and he uses this his covenant name, the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, or Yahweh Jehovah, Jehovah Yahweh. doesn't really matter which order you put them in. It means the same thing. It's the covenant name of God. It's the promise-keeping name of God. It's God who is both the Creator and God who is also the Master. And it's important that you see that in this particular chapter. Because this is God, after the fact, coming back to say, Look, it was me who made the covenant with Moses. It is me who kept the covenant with you. It is me, in fact, who has done this great work. And it is me who will sustain the work that has been done. So important for us to see that. And really the only thing that God asks as he continues on in these remaining verses is, would you serve me? You're going to see that word come up 15 times. Would you serve me? Would you love me by serving me? You know, sometimes I think that's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Will we love God by serving Him? Because it's really easy to just receive, amen? I receive pretty... I I used to not be able to receive because I'm a guy. But as I've gotten older, it's like, Yes, give that to me. If I don't have to work, that's really Can I sit on the couch and get that? Come. So preach it. Rick's back there. You know, it, it, as you get older, you're going to find out that your coffee tables move in closer and you keep like the little, you know, the the little stand there for your TV, dinner, and everything gets a little closer. That's because God's the, the giver of good gifts and he loves us. He just loves to lavish upon us and sometimes we can, rest, but he really wants us to be engaged in serving him. And so here, verse 1, the 24th and final chapter here in the book of Joshua, verse 1 says, And then Joshua summoned all the tribes of Israel, so all twelve tribes gathered together at Shechem, including their elders, their leaders, their judges, their officers. And so they came and presented themselves to God. Now notice, Very carefully what's being said here. They presented themselves to God. Yes, it is Joshua, and yes, it is Eliezer, the high priest, who are gathered together there, and they will be the voice, but they have gathered to present themselves to God. Have you ever thought about when you come to church, you're you're not presenting yourself to other people. You're not presenting yourself to me. You're presenting yourself to God. We, We come to worship the Lord. We don't come to worship Jeff or a Calvary Chapel or a building or a thing or a worship team, as wonderful as all those things are. We come to present ourselves to God, for him to speak to us, for him to touch us and work in our lives. And it would be rather foolish to give of our time and our talent And a treasure to come and hear from the Lord and then to walk away having heard and do nothing with it. So I encourage you as you hear these words tonight, remember that it is God that is speaking. It's very clear actually, you'll see the first person pronoun I over and over and over and over again. But it's really the Lord having opportunity to speak into the lives of the children of Israel. So important that we allow God to speak into our lives. And Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. In other words, God's going to speak to him. Long ago, I won't use my God voice. But God is now speaking. We all have, you, you, we get that from television and movies, don't we? You know, like the voice of God. The Lord, you know, it's, it's always a really deep, very loud, and penetrating voice. But I often think that that's a wrong representation of the Lord. Because I know very often the Lord speaks to me in quietness, sometimes he speaks to me in silence. Sometimes he speaks in that very still and small voice. A gentle voice, a tender voice. It's not always a big booming voice. So I don't know what voice. I don't know what tone. But I know this, God wants to speak to his people. Now, just as he did then. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, father of Abraham, and Nahor, who lived beyond the Euphrates' rivers. And they worshipped other gods. Notice that. Please mark it. Please underline it. When Abraham's father Terah and Nahor lived in Ur of the Chaldees, they worshipped other gods. They weren't following after the Lord God of Israel, because there was no Israel. They hadn't even come into existence yet. They were heathen people. And yet God called out to them. Isn't that the story of our lives? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly? While we were doing our own thing, going the wrong way, the Lord Jesus sent some crazy knucklehead to share the gospel with you and you thought he was a complete fool or she was a complete idiot and, you know, what's this Jesus thing all about? And all of a sudden, the light goes on. The same was true for Abraham. He wasn't looking for God. God was looking for him. God initiates salvation. Don't forget that. Because if that's not true, then he can't keep his promises. Because most of the people in the world are not looking for God. But I took your ancestor Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him to the land of Canaan. I gave him many descendants through his son Isaac. He shouldn't even have had Isaac, right? Doesn't his name mean laughter? Wasn't it kind of the big joke in the land of Canaan? Sure Abraham and Sarah are gonna have a kid? Are you kidding me? So much so that Sarah herself laughed. It's because it wasn't them, it was God. God was calling and God was doing. And to Isaac I gave Jacob, Esau, and to Esau I gave the mountains of Seir, which is where the present ruins of the city of Petra are located, the mountains of Jordan, while Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. It seems like Esau got the better end of the deal, doesn't it? Think about it. You ever get jealous of the... Wicked in the world that it seems like they got the better end of the deal? I mean, look at all the awesome things they get to do. They get to sin, and then they get to sin some more, and then they get to sin after that, and it seems like everything goes fine for them. And you're in bondage. You're making mud bricks without straw. Your days are hard. God knows what he's doing. And even if he sends you off to Egypt for a time to make mud bricks, he hasn't forgotten where you're at. Amen? You see, God is the one who's doing the choosing here. When God called Abraham to leave or the Chaldees to go to Canaan, uh, he was a heathen like the rest of the heathens in the neighborhood. He lived in Heathenville. He was hanging out with heathens, doing heathen things. He wasn't wandering around going, "Man, I sure wonder about the Lord God of Israel." Oh, that's right, Israel didn't exist yet. He wasn't God wasn't visible in the lives of a people yet. In fact, he was going to use Abraham to actually make that a reality. He says, "Hey, uh, Abe, Sarah, I want to make you the father of a multitude." That's actually the reason that Sarah laughed. A multitude? Look, we aren't doing too good with one. Forget the multitude thing. And oh, by the way, I'm barren. You don't know that? Yes, God knows that. But God can still do what God wants to do. So much so that Stephen, when he would write in Acts chapter 7, in his own farewell speech, by the way, another great farewell speech, The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. He knew exactly what had happened. You see, reminding every Jew that their very existence, their national identity, was an act of the grace of God. Everything about them is grace. When you see it was I who took your ancestor and I who gave them many descendants and I gave Jacob and Esau because he gave Isaac first, amen? It's God. It's God at work. Yeah, it's the exact reason, if you will. And I think it's so important for us to see this. It's the exact reason that when you look at your own life, You, along with the disciples in the hearing of the voice of Jesus in John chapter 15, he said to the disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Think about all the disciples, what they were doing when when Jesus found them. They weren't looking for God. They were fishing, they were tax collecting, they were doing the things they normally do. And along comes Jesus. Along comes God. It's why we know that the book of Ephesians is correct when it declares there in chapter 1 that we were chosen in Christ before the very foundations of the world. That's what it says, doesn't it? It's hard for us to understand. And it doesn't make us an exclusive club in the sense that we're worthy of it. It makes an exclusive club because God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so God choosing... God-working, God-blessing. And and frankly, you know, the doctrine of election is one of those things that I don't know of a single book that I've ever read, and I have probably a dozen of them on this single subject, the doctrine of election, that I've read that I've go, ah, that's the answer. It's hard to understand. But as D.L. Moody wisely said, you know what? You try and explain it, you lose your mind. Try and explain it away, you might just lose your soul. We have been elected by God. We've been chosen. God has chosen people. We are His chosen, adopted children. God chooses and God works in our lives. And I want just encourage you, if God didn't take that first step, Think about this for just once. If God didn't take the first step with Abraham, there would be no Isaac. There would be no Jacob. There would be no children of Israel. There would be no Judah. There would be no Jesus. God took the first step. He always does. Whether that's in us individually or or whether as a country, a nation, it is the Lord who takes the first steps towards us. We have to then respond. You have to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You're not saved because you're in a group of people. You're saved because you believe. You're saved because by faith you have received the understanding that you need to accept that Jesus is who he says he is. We are the elect of God. We are special in that sense. But not because we're special, but because he's special. We've entered into a special relationship with the true and the living God. And if that doesn't make you special, I don't know what it makes you. God's chosen us. Just as he chose them. He calls himself the Lord God of Israel. He does that 15 times in the book of Joshua, by the way. He says, look. I am Yahweh Adonai. I am the Creator God, who is your Master, and I am actually the founder of your nation. And so serve me, love me, honor me. And you remember when he first met with them as a, as a nation, remember he did that between those two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and he says, look, you, you can have the blessings of obedience or the curses of disobedience, The choice is yours. But in between these two things is your heart, the altar. Come to me at the altar, and I'll give you the understanding of the blessings, and I'll give you the understanding of the curses. That's why Scripture says that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that we have conviction of two things, sin and righteousness, blessing and curses. We understand who God is, because he talks to us, he speaks to us, he comes to us. He says, look, I want to have a relationship with you. The Lord truly was the one who delivered Israel. Now think about it, And as I started this whole book, remember, this was not a mighty military force. I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity to go to a, a, a real military air show or perhaps go to uh down in San Diego every year they have Navy Day where they they bring everything out. The carriers are out in the middle of the bay and jets are flying over and you're just like, Man, look at the amazing might of the United States military. I, I don't know how many of you've seen those things. Pretty impressive. If you've been to Washington, D.C., and you're able to stroll down the mall and look at the Lincoln Memorial at one end and the Capitol Building at the other and the White House in the middle and the Washington Monument in the middle of that lawn, and you're not able to say, this country is amazing. Tour the Smithsonian, maybe the Museum of Natural History there on the mall. Maybe you go to the National Archives and you sit there and you stare and you try and read the Declaration of Independence. You would say this nation is great, unlike any other place on earth and has been for a very long time. Nothing compared to the greatness of our God. Absolutely nothing. And in the case of the children of Israel, they were really nothing. They were not the United States of America when they came from Egypt. Amen? They were a bunch of dirtbag rock hoarders. I mean, they didn't... E- they're, hey, look at the Arabian Peninsula today. Try and find a lake. There were no bathing. There were no trees. They didn't come with a massive stockpile of weapons. They didn't come with horses and chariots. They strolled into Canaan, probably with a few sheep and a few goats and enough things to basically survive the journey, and that was it. That's the mighty military force of the nation of Israel governed by God. And so now notice what verse 5 says, And then I sent Moses and Aaron. And I brought terrible plagues on Egypt. And afterwards, I brought you out as a free people. You see, even in bondage, they couldn't get themselves out. Even against the Egyptians, who, by the way, Pharaoh had actually decided to let them go, and then reneged on the promise. Amen? They couldn't even get out when he let them go. They still needed deliverance to get across the Red Sea. But when your ancestors arrived at the Red Sea, the Egyptians chased after you with chariots and charioteers. And when your ancestors cried out to the Lord, when they recognized who God is and who they weren't, they went to the right source. I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I brought the sea crashing down on the Egyptians, drowning them. With your very own eyes, you saw what I did. Then you lived in the wilderness for many years. You didn't do it. It wasn't you. They didn't win their freedom. They weren't responsible for it. Basically, they had nothing to do with it. Matter of fact, if anything, they actually made it harder on God in their unbelief. And remember what they did when they got to the wilderness? Remember their little, uh, their little journey there at the mountain? Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments. Disappears for a few days. What happens? Let's make a golden calf. Party! They're all dancing around the campfire, throwing earrings in, making a golden We didn't do that. Made itself. God did it. They didn't do it. God did it. Matter of fact, they were doing everything they could to mess it up. Anybody else had a time in your life where you were doing everything you could to mess it up. And God still did it. I'm here tonight because God did it. Plain and simple. All glory and honor and praise goes to Him. Because I can mess up most anything. And so can you. That's why we say too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Right? You don't know always say that. Because too much of a good thing makes us dependent on us and the good thing. And pretty soon, we don't look for God. You see, while they were in Egypt, they were suffering. But they forgot how much they suffered almost instantaneously, as soon as they got a little bit of freedom. Isn't it weird how the Lord delivers you, and you get a little bit of freedom, and the first thing you do is run right back to Egypt. Like, hey, there was pots of meat, there's onions, there's leeks back there, going back there. God did it. And he continues to do it. That's his grace at work. Did they know the full grace of God as we know the grace of God today? No, because there's no cross yet. But they got to see the grace of God in action in their lives. What a glorious thing. You see, sometimes we kind of separate out the Old Testament. When we look at it, it's kind of like, well, you know, there's the grace on the one side, and there's a the law on the other. Ah, oh, brothers and sisters, the grace of God is very visible in the Old Testament. The children of Israel are proof positive that God dealt with them in grace. And there it was, the blood, and they were set free. They crossed across that Red Sea, not because they got down. They didn't build a dam. You know, they didn't gather to get, okay... All you guys line up on this side and blow really hard. And you guys over here and blow really hard. I think it's downhill that way. I want the downhill side. didn't do that. God did for them what they could not do for themselves. That's grace, amen? It's unmerited favor, isn't it? God did for them what they could not do for themselves. God's still doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's been like that all the way along. Notice how he guided them. Verse 8, And finally, I brought you into the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. Now, A little work for you to do this week. Go get yourself a, a map. You probably have one in the back of your Bible, if you have a recent Bible. And look at where they came from, and then look at where they went. And ask yourself a simple question. Which one would you like? You see, God was in no obligation to drag them out of the Arabian Peninsula. How many of you have ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia? You know that desert sand scene? That's an area called the Empty Quarter. That is the largest sand desert on earth. At 85 miles an hour, it will take you 11 hours to drive across it. It's 900 miles wide. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever walked in a sand desert for 100 yards. 200 yards, maybe a mile. It's not the most pleasant experience when it's 120 They were in that place. No rivers. They had to rely on pools of stagnant water, collected in rocks. They undoubtedly stayed out of the empty quarter and stayed in the boiling hot rocky part instead, because that was better. And God says, look, I, I guided you. I brought you Into the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. That is the first place they could have come to where there would have been running water. All of a sudden, for the first time in 40 years. A creek! Come here, look! It's moving water! It's not stagnant and stinky. We've been bathing and drinking in the same hole for years. Check this out. Doesn't God work like that in our lives? He he brings living, moving water into our lives when he brings us into the promised land. And they fought against you. You see, the first place they came to, there was war. Second place they came to, more war. Third place, more war. Fourth place, more war. Seven consecutive times more war. They fought against you, but I destroyed them before you. I gave you victory over them, and you took possession of their land. And then Balak, the son of Zephor, the king of Moab, the land of Edom, the land of Esau, the land of Seir, the guy whom it looked like he got the lion's share of the deal, that guy. He was the father of the Moabites. Started a war against Israel. And he sun- summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to him. And instead I made Balaam bless you. And so I rescued you from Balak. You see, he he guided them even in the things that we would look at and go, Man, why would you let that happen? Look, isn't it bad enough? Think about their history. Abraham gets to Canaan. What does he do? Turns into a pathological liar. Right? Isn't that what happened? He has his kids. They're pathological liars. After the whole group of pathological liars get sent down to Egypt, they're actually used by God to rescue the Egyptians from a famine, by the way. So even in their bondage, they're used for good. They're then set free out. They go into the most inhospitable place on earth. They have to wander around there for 40 years. They finally get into land. They go into war, and all the people of the land want to curse them. This is a rather ignominious beginning for a Great nation, isn't it? The secret ingredient, notice it. But God. Book of Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy, amen? You see, he's being merciful to them. He's being gracious to them. And he's pouring into their lives things that they do not deserve. They deserve to have to go fight their own battles. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. Aren't you glad that God still works with knuckleheads? I am. I am. I'm still a knucklehead. I'm just a saved knucklehead. I'm a knucklehead that loves Jesus. I'm a knucklehead that's been blessed by the Lord. In spite of he's blessed me when he probably should have cursed me. He should have let Balaam come into my life. But he didn't, because he loves us. He wants to be gracious and merciful. He's abounding, his word says, in mercy. And basically, he brought them out so that he could bring them in. That's the whole focus of that sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. He says, look, I'm going to do these things for you. As much as you rebel, as much as you're silly, as much as you do dumb things, I still love you. Aren't you glad that God's grace abounds to knuckleheads? Or knucklehead S's. We'll make you ladies knucklehead S's. Just the guys are knuckleheads. Okay. Sounds better somehow. I don't know. Yeah, aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful for the glorious grace of God in your life? Because you know what? We're just like the children of Israel. We're rebellious at times, aren't we? I don't think there's a person in here. I'm looking around and I'm thinking i know just virtually everybody in here. And I don't think there's one of us in here that hasn't had a time to where we kind of told God, told God how he's supposed to run the universe. Amen. Anybody else been guilty of that? Well, Lord, if I was you and I you know, I would do it this way. But well, God brings us out of bondage so that He can bring us into glory. Amen. He doesn't bring us out of bondage so that we can be, you know, garbage in the new land. He brings us out of bondage so that we can be glorious. He guided them every step of the way. And I want you to also notice it sure didn't seem like he was doing much guiding during that time, did it? Imagine if you were one of the children of Israel. First you got Abraham as your father. He birthed Isaac. Isaac birthed Jacob. Then come the twelve knuckleheads, the original knuckleheads. They birth more knuckleheads. And those knuckleheads go into bondage as knuckleheads. And then they're delivered only to be knuckleheads again. You get the picture? If God's not calling all these people back to himself, where do you think they're going to go after five or six or eight or ten generations of being professional knuckleheads? They'd be going the wrong direction. And every time God delivers them, you look back at it, you remember the time when we finally got... (laughs) Look I want you to put a serpent on a pole in the middle of the camp and anyone who looks on it will live everybody's going come on seriously a serpent on <laughs> just do it and what happens everybody who looked on the serpent on the pole lived they can't find water well grab that tree and throw it into the water and it'll make those bitter waters sweet the whole time what's he doing He's saying, look, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man comes into living water. He's saying, look, I'm the secret ingredient in this all being well. I want to graciously bless you. But serve me. Be obedient. It was, in fact, the Lord who actually gave them their land. Notice verse 11. When you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All of the ites were against them. Every last one of them, right? It's like the land of the ites. And no matter what lineage they had, if they were anybody other than the children of Israel, they were automatic enemies. Every corner they turned, every rock they turned over, every valley they went down, every river they crossed was another war waiting. You ever feel like that's your life? Every valley you cross, every river you go down, every place you go, it's like the entire world is against us at times. I feel that way at times. I mean, I That's just kind of been Connie and I's life of late for some reason. We happen to believe it's because God's got some major, wonderful thing He's going to do. He's doing something in us. But sometimes, well, you know, I'll just join the Gergashites. You know, I mean, really, is it going to be that bad to be a Jebusite after all? I mean, you know, they invented almond roca. They also all died of diabetes. you, You see, sometimes we start looking at the world, we start hungering after the things of the world because we get tired of the battles. And if it's you fighting the battles, you're going to get tired of the battles. But if the battle truly, as this book says, belongs to the Lord, and He fights it, and He wins those battles, then you have an infinite capacity to have victory. Amen? When you cross the River Jordan, all these people... But I gave you victory over them. I gave you victory. I sent terror ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It was not your swords or bows that brought you victory. It wasn't you at all. They weren't afraid of you. He was reminding them of who they were. You know when Paul says there in Second Corinthians, when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he uses this incredible example, using it in, in relationship with love. You see in mirror dimly. but Then we're going to see face to face. When I realize exactly what I, when I finally get the true picture of me, I realize I need all the Jesus I can get. Because I'm not good. It's kind of like the story of Sleeping Beauty. You know the story. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Not me. Not you. Matter of fact, when it finally gets revealed what we look like, you're like, oh no. It's not us. It's not our mightiness. It's not our swords. It's not our bows. It's not our own personal human strength. I gave you land you had not worked on. Please look at these things. I gave you land that you had not worked on. The promise I made to you, you weren't even faithful to me, and I still kept my end of the deal. I told you in Deuteronomy chapter 6, writing through Moses, that I would bring you into the land, and that land you would not work for, and I kept my word. I gave you towns you did not build. The towns where you are now living. The very places that you inhabit, you didn't even build. They used to belong to the Hivites and the Girgashites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the ites. That's how you got your cities. You didn't even have to build your own cities. I gave you the vineyards, the olive groves for food that you did not plant. It was me. You see, this is a picture of God's grace, isn't it? Because that that's the way it all works. It's God's grace working through us and to us. You see, God had promised to do it, and God did it. God had called, and He brought them in. God had said, this is the way it will go, and it won't depend on you. And He kept that promise. And you know, sometimes we have a tendency to pull the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. But as D.L. Moody again wisely said, the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. We simply now can see what it is that God was doing. We now get it. We understand it better. We have the book of Romans. We pull it out. Oh, we're justified by faith. Amen? That's what Martin Luther came to. That's how the Reformation started. The just shall live by faith. You see, his thesis that he nailed to the door at the church at Wittenberg—he was like, "These are the grievances we have against the Catholic Church. We're tired of paying indulges. We're tired—we're tired of paying for forgiveness." That was one of them. I don't want to have to pay for forgiveness. That can't possibly be God's plan. He did that because he read Romans chapter one, and he said, "The just shall live." By faith, In other words, those who are the justified ones, made just as if you have never sinned, is a gracious act of God. It's not because you did anything, it's because He is who He says He is. He's faithful when we are faithless. And so when we think about the grace of God in the Old Testament, this book is proof of it. Because as I, as we've looked through these wars and these battles and all these things that have gone on, it's pretty easy to get kind of sick and tired of the children of Israel, isn't it? It is for me. I look at it, it's just like, you know, just let them die. I'm like, go ahead, let them get killed off. It's okay. The Girgashites are better. The Jebusites would be better. But God couldn't do that because He promised that they would be His people. As lame as they were. And boy, am I thankful that God keeps His promises as lame as we are. Amen? My goodness. You think about your own lameness. You ever think about your own lameness? And use the word correctly. It means to not be able to walk because there's something wrong with one of your appendages. Something as simple as just getting from place to place you can no longer do. That's what lame means. They were lame. They were also blind. They were deaf. They were dumb. And so were all of us until we met Jesus. That's why we need His grace. Romans chapter 9 verse 10, uh, I believe was in the heart of God at creation. I don't think it was a New Testament thing. It's how God's always been, and it says there, speaking of, of our relationship by grace, the grace of God coming into our lives. Not only this, but when Rebecca, also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, the children not being yet born or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was true in Abraham's life. It was true in, in the seed of Abraham's life that God was at work in us. You see, the emphasis is on the goodness of God and who He is. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll wrap it up for tonight. And I just want to remind you that God's character changes not. That His word declares of Him that He is the same yesterday, today, today. And forever. That Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am. In Greek, ego ime. Self existent, uncaused, cause of everything else was before Abraham. And that self Explainable, uncaused cause of everything else was seeking after a pagan Abraham in a pagan nation at a pagan time when they were not looking for God. God came looking for Abraham. Verse 4, Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, Why is that word important in this context? Because mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Amen? That's mercy. What did Abraham deserve in Ur of Chaldees? Death? Hell? Destruction? Holy barbecue? He deserved to die and rot right there with the rest of his pagan friends but god who is rich in mercy because of please underline that tells you why because of his great love with which he has loved us you see this was what was enacting the the details of abraham's life this is what was empowering it the love of god poured out upon abraham The love of God poured out upon a disobedient, rebellious people. The love of God calling people to repentance, to change. The love of God pouring out the grace of God. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, and since you see Abraham here? See, it's easy to see us, because we see it in a New Testament context. But can you see Abraham? Abraham. Very important you see Abraham, because you're going to see Abraham in heaven, not because he at that time understood that Jesus would die on the cross, but that he understood that God's grace would one day come. Made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus You realize the only thing that could draw a motley crew like this together in one room is exactly one thing, Jesus. Amen? It's exactly one thing. That's how we all ended up here. It's the only reason we keep coming here. Not because of me. It's not because of the worship team. It's not because we have free coffee. Well, some of you, it's free coffee. It's because of Jesus. Amen? The love wherein he loved us. And somehow he makes us sit together in heavenly places. That's crazy. That's nuts. His love supersedes all that stuff that could divide us, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? Abraham understood that. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. In his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's why Abraham is used in the hall of faith. That's why he's used as an example of someone before the cross of Christ who had faith to believe the Messiah was coming. He's a perfect example. He was a knucklehead in Ur that God came after. That knucklehead obeyed and believed, and he went to a land, what does your Bible say, that he knew not. And it was there that the grace of God was poured out in his life. It was there that he received mercy from the Lord. It was there that he received the blessings of God. It was there that he sat in the heavenly places with people with whom he should not even have been identified. Why? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It wasn't of works. Abraham couldn't boast, and you and I can't boast. Why? Because we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. We're his finger paintings in heaven. He said, one day I'm going to make Jeff. Yeah, I know Jeff's not going to be exactly uh, perfect. But I love him, and I want to shower him with mercy and love. I want to pour out my grace in his life. I want him to know that love. And so, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before he even created the world, that we might walk in him. It's the story of Abraham. It's the story of Isaac. It's the story of Jacob. It's the story of Israel and Canaan. And it's your story too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, how gracious you are to us. Lord, we just thank you that somewhere in the annals of the history of heaven, You jotted down our names. You came looking for us. Lord, you showered us with grace. You gave us faith to believe. You gave us mercy in our failures. You gave us righteousness for our sin. You gave us forgiveness for our rebellion. You gave us grace. Father, we love you. And we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to we might be saved. Lord, thank you for this beautiful picture. Lord, we pray that we remember it always. Lord, you've always been a gracious God. We can rest in that and trust in it. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for seeking us out. And in return, we just want to tell you we love you. And we bless you. And we honor you. And Lord, we want to serve you. So help us to be ready. Help us to be willing. You created us to be able. And we just want to do our best, Lord, till you come for us to tell you how much we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. So the next time somebody tells you there's no grace in the Old Testament, tell them they're silly and then take them to the book of Joshua.